Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome in. We are just absolutely sledging through Revelation. We're in chapter 14 again, and we had our first time mix up today. You're Who's going to be more excited when the time changes? You or me? You're texting me at 7.15 a.m. So yeah, time doesn't level. change. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. California. I live in Arizona. We don't have time changes. Exactly. That's the problem. So yeah, yeah, I've been sitting here waiting for you for an hour. You're totally late. That's, that's pretty funny. <laughs> You're like texting me like I'm on. I'm like, yeah, I'm eating breakfast with my kid watching Peppa Pig or whatever it is. We're well, you said 8.15. So it's yeah, 8.15. Yeah, the way the so, Californians do it. Anyways, I only got like five minutes left to finish this episode. Exactly. Yeah, shortest so, episode ever. Let's hurry up. Cool. So what are we going to do today? We're going to look at Revelation 14 verses 6 through 20. I know last week I said chapter 14 and 15, but as I said to you before we started it, this stuff is just so good. I I can't skim over it too quickly. I know we've only, this is like what, week number seven in our study of the book of Revelation, something like that? Seven. So, 77. We're, we're, we're almost finished and it's gone. It's just flown by. I think we've done it in a month and a half or whatever. But I really want us to look at Revelation chapter 14 a little bit more because it really opens the door for what's going to follow. So we're entering the end of the story. We've noted that the main story in the book of Revelation was completed in chapter 11 and the two witnesses. They represent all of God's people and of course, they fulfill their ministries. The nations are brought to repentance in chapter 11, verse 13. Unfortunately, not everyone saved, but the seventh trumpet then comes, and that becomes the end. And then in chapters 12 through 16, and it's, we're in the middle of that, John then adds more details to the story that he told, and na- namely, he tells that there was a war against the two witnesses in chapter 11, verse 7, and 12 and 13 specifically add details to that war. Oh, it's the war that the dragons waged against God's people from the beginning of time. Oh, and guess what? He gets two beasts to do his work for him. The first beast is maybe the political embodiment of Rome, the imperial powers of the world. The second beast is called the false prophet, and that's the imperial religion. But of course, in our modern world, it's the political, religious, social, economic system that causes everyone to worship the empire. And so now in chapter 14, verses 6 through 20, we're bringing this to an end, and it's going to bring it to an end by introducing the final judgment that's going to occur in chapter 16. So that's where we're at here in in chapter 14. Okay. We also saw in 13, just what the beasts we spent a lot of time off, obviously on both beasts and how serious and how just the admonition to the people of God to say, don't go along with the beasts. Don't go along with the empire. It's claims will ultimately suffer in the end. And you will suffer in the end if you do. Yeah. Cause it uses the threat of punishment for those who don't Mm -hmm. follow and make war against the saints. Yeah. Uh, And then of course it deprives them of the opportunity to participate in the economy. If you don't have the mark, you can't buy or sell. And so it's very significant and very important that we understand what that means in in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. So before we go into the 1415 section, we overlapped okay. in the, the first part of 14 a little bit. Yeah. Can we just address real quick the popular idea that when we're looking at Revelation 13, that it depicts this end times empire that imposes its will on the world. It sets up a one world government. That's probably a, a trigger word to use. Yeah, yeah. And even now, like I'm starting to see this rhetoric. We're recording this in... January of 2024, we're obviously kicking off election season. This sort mm. of language is always popping up. I'm even already seeing this sort of stuff on social media about who who is going to be the one to deceive the nations, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Is this something we want to look at real quick? Uh, sure. My response to that whole idea is that I find it extremely dangerous. It's interesting that those who take this understanding of the book of Revelation, in particular Revelation 13, and the beast is seven heads and ten horns, and that's this European Union or United Nations, something like this, a revived Roman Empire. They take this idea, and yet they're all worried about like, getting the mark of the beast when it's actually, if you take it literally, then it says that Christians can't get the mark of the beast. Uh, or they argue that we'll be raptured out of the way when the, all that begins to happen anyways. So mm-hmm. it's something that we don't actually have to worry about. But John, as we point out, is clearly concerned that his readers are in danger of being deceived and falling prey to the lures of the beast. In chapter 18, we're going to even see the statement, come out of her, my people. And what's really intriguing is this, is in chapter 12, the woman was taken into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God. We then noticed that even though she was there 
in a place prepared by God away from the presence of the devil, the dragon pours water out of its mouth in order to devour her and destroy her. And it's, it's not actually uh, totally isolated from the presence of the devil. It's just simply protected from, ultimately, this, this divine protection, yet there's persecution in the midst of it. What's interesting then is that the woman in chapter 17, this heart of Babylon, is the economic prosperity side of the empire, the commerce side of the empire that provided all those luxurious goods for the elite in Rome at the expense of the poor and the marginalized, the 90% that we've talked about before in the Roman Empire. They all had to work in order to provide for the well-being of those in Rome. John's taken into the wilderness to see the woman. This woman is in the same place that God's people are. And I think that's very intentional because John only uses wilderness to describe the location of God's people in chapter 12 and the, the location of the woman who, who he says, the woman whom you saw is the great city that reigns over the kings of the earth in, in Revelation chapter 17. So I think that's very, very significant. We noted, of course, the idea that of these beasts are aimed at deceiving God's people so that the first beast is Christ-like because one of its heads appeared as if it had been slain, the same language used to describe the lamb, as if it had been slain. The false prophet, the second beast in Revelation 13, says he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Let's, guys, he's not a lamb. He, he's a dragon. So the idea then is that God's people are being warned to not participate. In, the, the book of Revelation is not written to say, hey, this is what's going to happen at the end of the world, and you'll know what it's going to look like so that it'll all be good for you guys, but oh, it's going to be really bad for them. It's not saying that. It's saying, guys, this is what's going on, and don't be caught into the lure and into the temptations. And then something that we're going to look at a little bit more as we proceed through chapter 14, there's going to be four times this exhortation. The first occurrence was in chapter 13, uh, verse 9. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Then it says, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That's at the end of the first beast. At the end of the second beast, it says, here's the one who has wisdom, but who, him who has understanding, calculate. And then finally, we, we read the beginning of chapter 14 in our last couple of episodes, and that was the 144,000 are clearly contrasted with those who have the mark of the beast. Uh, and the idea is, these are the ones who give their allegiance to Jesus and follow the lamb wherever he goes. These are the ones who give their allegiance to the beast. Don't be like that. So it's a strong exhortation and warning to the church to be aware not because it's secular powers and secular nations of the world and some Gorbachev person or some last days emperor who's going to do all these things and wage war on the state of Israel. It's, it's, it's uh, directed to the people of God saying, guys, hang in there and bear fruit for, God, for the sake of the God's kingdom, because this is the way of true justice for the world. And this is ultimately going to allow you to enter into the paradise of God in Revelation 21 and 22. Mm. Right, that's my sermon for the day. There you it's go. It's not my sermon for the day. It's my sermon for the moment. The, yeah, we'll launch yeah. another one in a second here. Yeah, we'll let's read there. the text of okay. chapter 14, verses 6 through 20. Yeah, 6 through 20. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb and the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name here is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of god and their faith in jesus and i heard a voice from heaven saying write this blessed are the dead who die in the lord from now on Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, with a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the grape winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as horses brittle for 1600 stadia. Very good in your translation there on the end, by the way. We'll get to that when we get there. Okay. Let me begin by asking, Vinny, what stands out as you look at this text here, look at this passage? I know we didn't rehearse for this. So mm-hmm. what? anything that you notice or anything that stands out that John's wants you to see that you recognize there? It's interesting reading it in that context, especially out loud. Mm-hmm. I'm being aware that this is apocalyptic. There's a lot of imagery and whatnot, but it reads so much like Old Testament prophets. Oh, at least that's what I just hit for for the first time on this Uh, backing up at the end. You have the image of the angel in verse 19. The the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the grape wine press. Mm -hmm. And and so you have this horticulture language of the people of God. I'm assuming that is referring to the people of God because this is addressing the saints. Right. But Uh he's talking to the the saints specifically. It seems like Like everyone can hear it, but this is to the saints. What do you mean by that? He's speaking to the saints. I'm not sure what What, part. so it seems like here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God in their faith. Yep. Okay. Yeah. That yep. along with this horticulture language, which is that's Old Testament prophet language for the people okay. of God. They're the vineyard of God. They're the okay. land. It's that kind of language. So it's this language where you're using that. And then it's, like, hey, guess what, guys? If you don't do this, is the consequence that's going to happen. So it's very prophet-like. It almost seems very much Deuteronomy 28 through 30, like a blessings and curses almost. It's not using that language, but I like just the vibe, if you want to call it that, or the mood. I'm reading this and I'm like, oh, this just sounds like prophet mm. language. And, and I'm hearing it in a way where it's like, oh, churches heed this warning. Yeah. In another sense, the prophets are to call the people to stay true to the covenant so it's like, stay true sure. to the covenant don't commit sexual immorality or, or false worship and you will be blessed and so uh, that, that's just or just you of, will be or else in this and this is like casting out some harsh yes. torment type language wrath language so yeah that, that's yeah. what i was that's just what came over me okay. when i'm reading it very interesting so again just to reiterate what i said at the beginning chapters 12 and 13 kind of added details to the war against the two witnesses because the main story ended in chapter 11 mm-hmm. Now in 14 here, we're moving to the end. He's preparing the readers for the final judgment, which the seven bulls are going to represent that. And it's actually going to be really interesting what John does with that. So this section is preparing us for introducing us to what's going to take place after this, most notably the final judgment. So Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Introducing to the final judgment, meaning this is a judgment that's going to happen. So believers, saints, you don't want to be a part of this. Right. So that's where I would a little more that. complicated than that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you're right, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that's yeah. different than how prophet reading would read where pro- like for the prophets, this doesn't necessarily have to happen. The covenantal people of God, I guess for Jeremiah, at the later part, they're speaking about, you're going to go into exile. Anyway, I'm just trying to work it out loud. So yeah. yeah. I, I, okay. I, I, my so up. keep in mind though, that one of the big issues, and we'll probably get to this a little bit later as we go through the text specifically, one of the big issues in the storyline is how long, O oh Lord? Sure. How long? When will you bring justice to the oppressed? Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps, if I'm recalling correctly, because I usually do this on a study of Revelation, we start with Psalm 96 and Psalm 98. Yeah. Rejoice, rejoice. Yep. Why? Because he's brought justice for the sake of the oppressed. So there is this sense of the oppressed crying out, how long, O oh Lord? Therefore, the final judgment has to come. It does have to come. This isn't an intermediary judgment. That the prophets might, hey, if you don't do this, God's going to do this. This is the final judgment, and that final judgment is justice for the sake of the oppressed. And that's really more of a focus. Hey, everyone. We want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we want to remind you that everything we provide at Determined Truth is free of charge. And this even includes all of the teaching that Rob does on a weekly basis to pastors in India and around the world. We don't have any supporters that get special behind-the-scenes access. But we can only do this with the generous support that comes from those of you who can afford to give. So if you would prayerfully consider supporting us with anything from $5 a month or more, we will continue to work hard to challenge the church to be the church. To give, go to DeterminedTruth.com and click on the Give tab or follow the link in the show notes. As we go through this passage, one of the things to notice, that it's really complex and it looks really difficult, but actually it's really well organized. John has seven beings in this chapter. 
there are six angels. There's three and then there's three. In the middle, there's one like a son of man. Now, it forms two distinct units. And I noticed that you paused right before verse 14 to say, now I'm in verse 14. And I'm assuming that you might have done that because your Bible might have had a little heading. Exactly why. I was just skipping to the next section. Uh, Yep. My Bible actually, interestingly here, as I'm looking at my New American Standard here on, on online, it has a heading after verse eight before verse nine. So it has six, seven, and eight as one, and then verses nine through 13 as the second section, and then the reapers introducing verse 14. Because I have yeah. both ESV and NRSV up, and both of them, okay. have, they, they both have that division between 13 and 14. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. totally makes sense, because there is two distinct units there. Yeah. Uh, the first three angels are specifically identified. There's kind of two triads of angels. There's, th- there's three angels, and there's three angels. The first triad the angels are even counted. Verse six, I saw another angel, which is interesting because it's the first angel. It's like, what do you mean another angel? Another one means there was one before it, but it's the first one, mm-hmm. oddly. But the reason why he's called another angel is to associate him or it with the second and third angel that follow. The second angel is referred to as, in verse eight, and then another angel, a second one. It even specifies it's a second one. And then in verse nine, and another angel, a third one. So that first group of angels are all called another angel, and they're numbered, a first one, a second one, and a third one. They also all make a pronouncement. They're all saying something. In verse 7, 8, and 9, they all say something. The second triad of angels, which are angels numbers 4, 5, and 6, which is confusing because it's being 5, 6, and 7, because remember the Son of Man in in the middle there. We'll just call them 4, 5, and 6. The second triad of angels are not numbered, but they're all linked by the fact that each one either comes out of the temple or came out from the altar. So they're all linked by their location. Furthermore, these angels are also linked because they either have a sharp sickle in their hand or they speak to one who has the sharp sickle. So the one like a son of man has a sharp sickle. And then this first angel of the second triad speaks to him and says, put in your sickle and reap. The next angel has a sharp sickle. And then the third one says, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. So we have these two distinct units, but yet they form together. That's why you have that bridge between 13 and 14, or that break between 13 and 14. But they're linked together by a total of seven beings. Interesting. So we have these two groups of, do we just call them groups then? Or Yeah, yeah the I use the word triads because they're triads, a group okay. of three, but that's fine. Okay, okay, that's, okay. that's a more technical term, but that's fine. So there's some structural differences between the two. What would we say the role is then of the first three or that first triad? So the first ones then are making an announcement or pronouncement of between the struggle between true and false worship. It's the contrast between the mark of the beast and the seal of God, the contrast between to whom do you give your allegiance? So the first one comes out and says, fear God and give him glory. There, There you go. True, worship him. And the reason why is because the hour of his judgment has come. Oh, which has to mean, we don't know this yet, but we'll see this in the next chapter, the next two chapters. It has to mean he's about to answer the prayers of the saints. Mm. He's about how long, O Lord? The answer is now. We saw that in the seventh trumpet, and that is there's no more delay. There's no more delay. That means the end is going to come. And now we've reached that end, and that end is the the answering of of their prayers. The second angel then says, fallen is Babylon the great. What's interesting is, we're like, who's Babylon? Mm-hmm. This is the first time the word Babylon's occurred in the book of Revelation. So again, if we read ahead, we might know who it is. And I don't think John's readers had any problem. Babylon was used, in fact, it's used in First Peter as an epitaph for Rome. And what in the biblical text, by the way, is Egypt and Babylon become paradigms or the paradigmatic of the two empires that oppose God's people. So Egypt, of course, enslaved the Israelites for 400 years, and they oppose God's people. and Moses and God has to defeat Pharaoh. And so you you see the plagues. So the paradigm of Egypt is is there. But Babylon is the embodiment of luxury and wealth and prosperity that entices God's people. And of course, in the prophets, segue for just a second, in the prophets, when they refer to Babylon coming Mm -hmm. to destroy the southern kingdoms of Judah, it's described like Egypt. Mm. So the, the coming of Babylon will be like another Egypt as well. Uh, But nonetheless, the third angel then says, anyone who worships the beast or receives his mark will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Ah, there you go. So Hmm. we have this contrast between true and false worship, fearing God and giving him glory, 
or worshiping the beast. And if you worship the beast, well, guess what? It's fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And whoever worships that beast will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And then this section is wrapped up in verses 12 and 13, where there's a yeah. call for endurance for those who keep the commandments of God and keep their faith in Jesus. And then there's this voice that kind of wraps it up that says, so I, I heard a voice from heaven saying, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from mm. now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, uh, that yeah. they may rest in their labors for their deeds follow them, which is also, there's so much there in terms of Protestant and evangelical theology, which I'm gladly part of. I'm part of that tribe. Sure. But we also just love this idea that says, I prayed a prayer. Now I got to go to heaven when I die. And yes. that's just such, Not, such a, you can't do that in revelation. It's such a harmful theology. It is. And I remember just going off on a, a side tangent on this. I remember years ago being asked to speak at a men's breakfast at a church mm. that I wasn't a part. I wasn't a member of that church or anything. That's when I was first exposed to revelation stuff. And I was asked, they said, what do you want to teach on? I'm like, I would love to teach on the theme of overcoming in the letters of revelation. And, and I was going through it and I was telling this to the men's pastor and he flipped out because he said, well, th that's going to cause a lot of problems because it makes it sound like it's works righteousness. And immediately, like he he's basically saying, I can't, I'm letting the Bible get in the way of my theology. Yeah. Yeah. At least revelation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and this is where I would say, like I've said it before, like, I stand in the reformed tradition, yeah. uh, more of a Calvinistic tradition. And I would say, like, no, I think there's a place for that. You can absolutely hold to a, a theology of a security of salvation. Like that's where I would land. And, yeah, but there's yeah. a perseverance that said the saints will persevere through these sorts of things. And you see this in something like revelation, like those things matter. I can't just yeah. say a prayer at camp and then I'm good. It's It goes back to what we were talking about even offline a little bit also, and it's a serious misreading of Paul and of the New mm -hmm. Testament. Yeah, the, I'm going to write my laws on your heart, Yes, and I'm going to circumcise your heart. If our heart is circumcised. It's so that we can do the law, exactly. not because the law is annulled. I, I did not come to abolish the law, uh, but to fulfill it. So you, you have Jesus explicitly stating at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm yep. not abolishing. In fact, you read the Sermon on the Mount, he actually intensifies the law. Yeah. He says, well, you heard it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, you can't even mm -hmm. have hatred in your heart. So, oh, that's not abolishing the law, it's intensifying it. The yep. point of it is that because the Spirit has come, we are now enabled to keep the law. So what's interesting is we go to Paul for this. We go, oh, Paul's by grace through faith and justification by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved 10. through faith. <laughs> Read verse 10. Yeah. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus yes. to do good works. And of course, Martin Luther had a problem with Paul and James. So there's not a problem when you recognize mm -hmm. the fact that being justified in Christ Jesus is so that we can accomplish the law. Yes. Because it's by means of the Holy Spirit. There is a tension, though, and that is between this perseverance of the saints idea that I affirm as well, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. this understanding that no one can snatch them out of my hand. I know my sleep. Yep, they hear yep. my voice. I, I get that. Mm -hmm. And this exhortation to overcome. Yep. And my answer is live in the tension. Yeah, that's both. But the tension's real. Yeah, because mm -hmm. what we're trying to fathom is the divine, and the divine is to some extent, unfathomable. I mean, we yeah. can comprehend God to some extent, but we can't ultimately comprehend God. If we could, we, we'd be God. And so I don't understand the tension or, or how to reconcile it, but the answer is don't eliminate it. If your theology eliminates the tension to the point where you have to not read the book of Revelation, then you see yes. there's a problem here in your theology. So. How often in the evangelical world do we ignore Revelation or ignore James? Like we hate James. Right. How, how many times have you, I'm talking to the people, how, how many times have we stood in our doorstep with a Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, and you bring up Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and they go to yeah. James chapter 2, and faith of that yeah. works is dead, and then so you're going to hop to Romans 3 or whatever. So James is just as inspired as Paul yeah. was. It's okay. We could hang out in James and be totally fine. Yeah. In James 2, he says, if you are fulfilling the royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Yes. And this backs uh, up in the end of chapter 1. This is what true religion is, or good religion yes. is. It yes. looks like this. Yeah, and it's love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it, th that's ultimately the embodiment of, of the law. So yeah, so what we have in, in Revelation 14, verse 12 then, is this reminder of this cause for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Mm -hmm. And then verse 13, okay, there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation, and here's one of them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, 
that they may, yes, says the Spirit, that they will rest from their labors for their deeds will follow them. Again, there's that reference to deeds, right? Their deeds will follow them, which is, by the way is in First Corinthians 15 at the resurrection chapter as well, that their deeds will follow mm-hmm. them. Yep. And it's like, oh, yeah. So remember, the word overcoming has a couple key passages that help us understand what overcoming means. First is chapter five, the lamb has overcome. And I heard that the lion has overcome, but I looked and I saw, behold, a lamb. So he overcame by dying. And then in chapter 12, they overcame because of the word of God, because of the blood of the lamb, and because they did not love their life even when faced with death. Hmm. Ah, I'm not sure that's good news, right? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now, from now on. Yeah. So you had mentioned chapter five and the concept of overcoming with Jesus. I mentioned in the illustration about talking to that pastor and using overcome from chapters two and three, where else in the book are we seeing the concept of overcoming or our perseverance or in patient endurance or that sort of theme? Okay. So you have overcoming throughout the whole book, right? Obviously in the seven messages explicitly, each message encourages the churches to overcome and then overcoming keeps getting defined more explicitly as we proceed. And then it says the beast overcame the saints and makes war against them. So you have this, we have to overcome the beast and the, and the trials and, and persecution and suffering he offers, as well as overcoming the temptation to give into the harlot and Babylon and, and all that does. O- overcoming is to persevere in your faith so that we bear witness to Jesus. The result of that is you're going to get killed. Therefore, mm. blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. But what's interesting, actually, in terms of this perseverance or patient endurance, depending on your translation, it might read two different ways. As I mentioned earlier, in 13 verse 18, at the end of the second beast, it says, here is mm-hmm. the wisdom, the one having a mind. And now at the end of the description of the first three angels, it says, here is. And it goes back to paralleling 13 verse 10 at the end of the first piece. It says, here is the patient endurance of the saints, the ones who have faith. So notice that 14, 12, and I'll put this in the show notes, 14, 12, and 13, 10 both say, here is the patient endurance and the faith of the saints. Although in 14, 12, it says the patient endurance of the saints, the ones who have faith. And then in chapter 17, which is clearly a new section, the description of the prostitute in the middle of the great prostitute, the great heart of Babylon. It says, here is the mind, the one having wisdom. And that parallels the second beast. Here is the wisdom, the one having a mind. So it's very interesting that John's inserting these exhortations to God's people to be faithful, which again goes back to what we said at the beginning. It's not this end times thing that happens out there in the world and just don't Mm -hmm. be part of it, but it's a danger that's infiltrating or trying to infiltrate the church. We had that first triad of angels, and we now have a second triad of angels that we're going to see in this next section. What's the role of those final three and the one like a son of man? I'm assuming that's Jesus, which is also coming from Old Testament imagery and for Daniel and Ezekiel, as well as Jesus's favorite description for himself. Yeah, there's almost little question that the one like a son of man is indeed Christ. And what's interesting is that it's in the middle of the set of seven, or two triads, and then this one becomes the middle, making a total of seven. And in the middle of the seven messages, which is the message of the church in Thyatira, Jesus is introduced as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and a feet are like burnished bronze. It's the only time that Jesus is named in the seven messages. In the middle of the seven messages, he's the Son of God. Right? So I think that's what's going on there. But nonetheless, what's interesting here is, is that He's sitting on a cloud, and it's a white cloud, which is interesting also, because normally God's sitting on a storm cloud. It's a cloud of storm, but Jesus is sitting on a white cloud. And the other thing that's odd is that throughout the Old Testament, it's always God who sits on the cloud. But certainly the use of Son of Man throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, Jesus' favorite title for himself, I think you said, is a reference that indicates that, that it's Jesus. But it's just another one of those examples of seeing like the deity of Jesus in in the Revelation story specifically. There's such a high view of Jesus in, in that Christology. In verses 14 through 20, this seems to have a, a description of a final judgment, but it seems like there's multiple times in Revelation you have like final judgments. Is, is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, the, that is correct also. The, there are multiple references that take us to the end. 
whether it's chapter seven, the great multitude is actually now walking before the throne of God and the, the lamb is guiding them and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. That's chapter seven. But we know that's obviously ultimately fulfilled in Revelation 21 and 22. In the sixth seal, you have the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand as the nations cry out. That's the final judgment. And so also the seventh trumpet is the, the final, final judgment. So now we have two harvests. So you have the one like a son of man and he has a sharp sickle. And then an angel, another angel is going to come and say, put in your sickle and reap. And then there's going to be another angel who also has a sharp sickle coming out of the temple. And then another angel says, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. Hmm. There's your indication that we have two different judgments going on. One is the command to reap, which suggests a harvesting of grain. The other one is a command to gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, which suggests the harvesting of grapes. Now, scholars will differ on this a little bit. There's not unanimous consensus on this, but the general understanding that I think I would affirm is we have two different judgments. One is the harvesting of the righteous, and one is the harvesting of the unrepentant for judgment. And the distinction is that the harvesting of grain only requires reaping. The harvesting of grapes, you not only harvest them, you not only cut the grapes, but then you trample them. And it's the trampling of the wine press, and that suggests a form of judgment. Hmm. Is this, and I'm thinking back to like Matthew 13, you have all these yeah. parables. Is this one of those sections that is suggesting that, you know, referring to a harvest, that a harvest is a good thing for Christians? Exactly. So, and I think that's why the, the first judgment, if you want to call it that, or the first harvest is actually the harvesting of God's people. So in Matthew hmm. 13, Jesus tells a parable of the parable of the wheat and the tares in verse 24. And he said, hey, there's the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in a field. So it's good seed. Mm-hmm. But verse 25, his enemy comes and sows tares among the wheat. Remember, the wheat is the good seed. The wheat sprouts up, but then the tares also sprout up. And so verse 27, the slaves of the landowner came and said, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How did the tares grow? And he said, well, an enemy did this. The slaves said, what do you want us to do then? Do you want us to gather them up? And he says, no, because if you gather up the tares, You'll uproot the wheat also. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. At that time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. So it seems to indicate that the gathering of the wheat is a harvesting of the righteous or of the good. But we should, we, we should not understand that as the rapture, right? No. Okay. No, there's no indication of a rapture. Again, you're reading into the Uh text, the rapture, which is, where do you get that from? This is the harvesting of the righteous. This is the end. And and the way I would affirm that would be in Revelation 14, you have two judgments. This is the final judgment. Maybe another way of saying it is that this is the judgment of the sheep and the judgment of the goats. The judgment of the sheep are depicted Uh Matthew 25. The judgment of the sheep are depicted as the harvesting of grain. Mm Mm-hmm. The harvesting of the goats is depicted as a harvesting of the grapes, which have to not only be harvested or or cut, they have to also be trampled. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we can mean, yes, it is a rapture. If what we mean by rapture in, from First Thessalonians is this is just the end. This is the judgment. This is when the right. resurrection will happen. If we mean that, yes, but we're not talking about this time where a harvest where we're pulling or God's pulling his wheat and then he's storing them for seven years. That's not what's happening. Or three and a half years. Exactly. Three, it, whatever. It's yeah. not a rapture in the popular understanding of what of we're rapture. It's the resurrection of God's people. Yeah. Yeah. Now the yeah. judgment of the, the grape harvest, by the way, also note it connects Back to verse eight, fallen is Babylon the great, it says. Specifically, the angel says, fallen is Babylon the great. She's made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. There you go. So it's clearly connecting with the wine there. And then again in verse 10, uh, it says, if you get the mark of the beast, you will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So the idea that the grapes are trampled suggests that it's Babylon's wine that's corrupting the way of life that she's offered the nations and, and enticing them to worship the beast now God's wine in response is the judgment of the nations. Okay. So when you just mentioned being trampled, like from verse 20, in some translations, I'm reading mine, it, it right. says a uh, trodden. Yeah. Both NRSV and ESV say trodden. Is this the same word used in chapter 11, going back to the two yes. witnesses? Y- yes, exactly. In fact, this, and this brings up a very important point. So in chapter 11, so whatever your translation says, it doesn't matter as long as it's consistent. They're not always consistent between 11 and uh, 14. 
But in chapter 11, John was given a measuring rod to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. We didn't cover that in great detail. I do in my book, Revelation of the Two Witnesses, though. And then it says in verse 2, leave out the outer court, which is outside the temple. Don't measure it because it's been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot. And my New American Standard says tread underfoot. It's the same word. They will trample underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And this actually goes back to Daniel chapter 8, but we won't get into that now. And, and I am reading like ES, ESV is not consistent either, where it says okay. it's trample in chapter 11 and it's trodden in 14. Oh, so that's, that's one funny. of those times where, yeah, it, it needs to be consistent then. Okay. It needs to be consistent because John is linking, which he does consistently. Mm-hmm. He links passages together by use of the same word or the same terms, mm-hmm. especially when those terms are used only in these two passages or only in these three passages, a very strong indication that those passages are being linked. So what's happening in chapter 11 is, the outer courts trampled, which I think indicates the persecution or suffering of God's people, because the temple is God's people. Here, it's the trampling of the nations because they trampled on God's people. And this is a principle, the Latin phrase lex talionis, or the law of retaliation, the idea of mm-hmm. the punishment fits the crime, an eye, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So the trampling of God's two witnesses is then linked with the trampling of the, the treading of the winepress or the trampling of the grapes because this is what you did to God's people. And we're going to see this especially as we move into chapter 16, that the bowl, seven bowls are going to be poured out. And it says, you are righteous in your judgment because they poured out the blood of your saints and prophets. And now you're pouring out your wrath upon them. When it talks about the trampling and it says the wine press was trampled outside the city, what's Mm -hmm. the significance of city? The question is, what city? What city are they trampled outside of? Because it says the city. So is, is that one yeah. of those instances where we should know which city they're referring to? I think we should. I think John's readers did. Now, for us, it's a little bit more difficult. We have two cities in the book of Revelation uh, of note. One, of course, is the holy city. Mm-hmm. Now, that goes back to chapter 11. They'll trample underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So the link there suggests that it's the holy city. The holy city is identified in Revelation 21 as the New Jerusalem. But there's also the great city, which is Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. You also see in Revelation 21 and 22 that outside the city are the dogs, the immoral persons, the murderers, adulterers, idolaters. And I think that's where they're being trampled at. They're outside the holy city. They're outside the the new Jerusalem. It's taking place outside of the ultimate climactic new Jerusalem, which raises a question I'm not going to answer now. Where is that? Because the new Jerusalem takes up the entirety of the new creation. Yes. When I was reading the text, when I finished up chapter 14, I had read in my translation, 1600 stadia. And I use it as a parallel because I use ESV and I've been using NRSV lately. I noticed that the NRSV says 200 miles. I'm curious, were you glad that it stated just that stadia or is it the 1600 that's important? It's the 1600 that's important. And I I commented, yeah, good job with your translation there at the end. The New American Standard says 200 miles. And so if you're listening to this, whenever you're reading an English Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, you got to look at the number and go, is that what the Greek says or is that what the English translation says? And they didn't have miles back then. So we know immediately it does it's, it doesn't say 200 miles. So I don't think they would use f- miles now either. <laughs> it would say kilometers. Right? That's yeah. correct. It's only this uh, American way of doing things. Yeah. We have to immediately figure out how do I know what the number is? Look for a footnote, look for a commentary, or look for a, a really good podcast if you can find one on the book of Revelation. There might be one out there <laughs> that's then going to discuss, hey, this is what the number is. So the number is 1600. Now, 1600 is probably four times four. And four, of course, is the number for creation and totality. And this is the trampling of the nations, and therefore it's the judgment of all the nations. Remember the every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, the fourfold reference to humanity so often throughout the book. And then it's 10 times 10. So 1,600 is four times four and 10 times 10. And 10 is the number for completion totality with regards to the law, something along those lines. So this is the, the judgment of the people for violation of the law. And 10 times 10 is just... This squaring of the numbers, intensifying it, it does come out to around 180 some odd miles because a stadia was a Roman measurement that's similar to a furlong, which for most Americans is like, well, what's a furlong? I know furlongs from the Kentucky Derby. A furlong is an eighth of a mile and a stadia is close to an eighth of a mile. So an eighth of a mile would be 200 miles, but it's actually not exactly the same. It's a little bit less than an eighth of a mile. So that's the idea. Okay. 
one of the themes that we haven't talked about yet is the the idea of the prayers of the saints. I know that's popped yes. up a few times so far in the book. Yep. It starts in chapter five in the throne room. And then we see it in a few other chapters. What's the connection between the judgments and the prayers of the saints? This is going to be critical. And I alluded to this earlier. So let's go ahead and read the references to the prayers of the saints, which occur in chapter five, eight, and then chapter eight, verses three and four. Though I think the cry in chapter six, how long, O Lord, is the specific content of the prayers of the saints are. So I don't know if you have Revelation 5, 8 handy, if you yep. want to read that. 5, 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Okay. So we don't know what the prayers of the saints are, like what's the content of the prayers of the saints, but notice that the four living creatures and the 24 elders have a harp and golden bowls. Mm-hmm. And the bowls, very important for chapter 15 and 16, the bowls are full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Ah, that's what's in the bowls. So when they pour out the bowls, I'm already giving you a clue what's going to happen in chapter 16. When the bowls are poured out, it's incense that's being poured mm-hmm. out, namely the prayers of the saints. Now, chapter 8 verses three and four. I don't know if you've flipped there now, if you have that or but not. There's six, chapter six as well. I guess you alluded to Yeah, we'll go back long. to six in a second. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So so three, and three and four. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So we have, again, reference to the prayers of the saints. We have reference again to the fact that this is before the altar. And then we have again the reference to the fact that there's something golden. It's a golden censer, not golden bowls this time. So it's somewhat different here, but it's another angel came. He's at the altar and he's got the prayers of the saints. Now, the fact that he's at the altar, I think, is another clue. If we go back to chapter 6, verse 10, that the prayers of the saints is how long, O Lord? So chapter 6, verse 9. Just to clarify something real quick. So even I read censer. It's not, this is one of those instances where censer and bowl don't need to match in terms of, they're completely different words altogether. Yeah, they are different words altogether because four living creatures have the golden bowls. Okay. So this angel doesn't have one of the golden bowls. This is an angel, not one of the four living creatures. So General, he'll use language like golden and prayers of the saints because he wants you to link the passages together. But then he distinguishes censor from bowl because they're not the same beings. Okay, that makes sense. There's a subtle distinction. Yep. Yeah. So now chapter six, sorry for interrupting. Yeah, n- yeah, no problem. Now chapter six. So in chapter six, John says, I saw in verse nine, underneath the altar, the souls of those who have been slain. Okay, so there's a reference to the altar again. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Hmm. So there's your link. I think the prayers of the saints then are the cry of the martyrs for justice. And so what's happening in this chapter then is the grain harvest is the harvesting of God's people saying, how long? The answer is now, because God's harvesting the righteous. So the one thing on the cloud is told, put in your sickle and reap, because the harvest of the earth has come. The hour of the reap has come. Now the harvest of the earth is ripe. There it is. The righteous are harvested. Hmm. At the same time, the martyr's cry was for justice. How long, O Lord? until you judge and avenge our blood on those who inhabit the earth. And this is what the grape harvest represents. The harvesting of the grape harvest is God's answer to their prayers to bring justice. The harvesting of the grain is the answering of the prayers of, now your prayers have been answered, come on up here, and and they're resurrected. What are some key takeaways that you have from this section? Let me begin with you. What are some thoughts that you might have, instead of me summarizing what I've already said, what are some things that you think of at this point in time? One of it is just what I already mentioned earlier in terms of like that seriousness, especially in the evangelical Protestant world to not, we need to not minimize works and what they mean. I did a lot of this work a while ago. I had to write for a thing that we did. It was the 500 years of Martin Luther in the mm-hmm. 95 thesis. Right, yeah, yeah. This is 2017. 2017, yeah. Yeah, it's so just reading a lot of reformers and whatnot, and even reading Calvin on these sorts of things like, and I forget if it was in the Institutes or one of his commentaries, either on James or Ephesians or whatever, but he was addressing the issue of works. And, And Calvin makes this really cool illustration saying faith and works are like the sun. The sun is the faith. It's the thing that you have, but the sun has to produce 
heat. And so while we are on earth, we are, or it's not the sun, right? Or it's not the sun, right? And and so while we're on earth, we, you step outside and you feel the effects of the sun. You put your hand out, you feel it, right? You're in Arizona, all about this, Rob. (laughs) And the thing is the the sun by nature will perfects, but the effects are not the sun. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we need to remember that, like what we do is as, and it's going to happen from our faith. It's if you really are the people of God, you're going to produce this thing. It's not the thing itself. So we don't want to confuse the two because we know you and I know plenty of really good people who do really good things who don't know Jesus. They're not the people of God, unfortunately, and they are good people who do good things. So we don't want to say the two things are synonymous, but there is something that says, no, you cannot have this dead faith that just says, Oh, I'm just saved. I said a prayer at camp to use modern language. So I think using imagery is very helpful. It's also noting that in the evangelical world in America, in the last hundred years, we've so watered down what it means to give a profession of faith, what it means to follow Jesus. We live in a life of luxury, so we don't have to worry about forsaking anything. So I would say my other takeaway from this is what are we really crying out for? When does the Western Christian really cry out? How long? Oh Lord, mm-hmm, uh, we, right. we cry it out at election season when our guy doesn't win, because obviously our guy is God's guy. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm saying that very tongue in cheek, but when we have the privilege to not have to cry out, how long, Oh Lord, we don't have to do mm-hmm. that in most instances in, in this type of stuff. There's other things that we, you and I were talking offline about just people that we know or family members or whoever, who are dealing with s- serious issues of the fall. Yeah, we cry out, mm-hmm. how long, oh Lord, will this happen? But when yeah, we're talking right. about the book of Revelation and, and this kind of call, we don't really do this. We don't have to call. Right. So how are we partnering with our brothers and sisters around the world who this is a legitimate call on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that for me is reminding, like, I need to step outside myself and use my own privilege platform and abilities to continue to be a member of those prayers of the saints around the world and pray for those people. And let's be clear. We're not saying that salvation is by works. We're saying salvation is by grace through faith. Yes. But works are a significant part of that because he now has circumcised our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit to enable us to fulfill the law. And the law is you shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because when we do that, as Luke 6, I think verse 35 or verse 38 says, when we do that, we become sons of God who yep. also loves his enemies. We, mm-hmm. we act like God. This is fulfilling Genesis chapter 1, of course, being made in God's image. That's what it means. But I, one of the things I think about as I was contemplating on this is Luke chapter 18. So in Luke 17, we have Luke's uh, shortened version of the, the discourse of the end times about the second coming. And then it, it continues on in chapter 18. And we know it continues on because at verse eight, it says, when the son of man comes. So we know he's talking about the second coming or what we might call the second coming. But he tells a parable. And he says in verse two, the, Luke 18, there's a, a judge who didn't fear God or respect man. There's a widow in that city. Now a widow is marginalized. She doesn't have anyone to, to speak up for her. She, no one to defend her, no one to provide for her needs. And so she says in verse three, she was saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while, he was unwilling. The judge was unwilling. But afterward, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by her continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Will not God bring justice for his elect who cry out to him day and night? And will he delay over long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice swiftly. However, when the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on the earth? Mm. Uh, and what I find interesting is, notice that the king's reply, that the, the people of God are crying out for justice. This widow is crying out for justice. How long, O oh Lord, will you bring justice? What we see in Revelation 14 is God's answer is, I will hear your prayers. Even a wicked king hears, hears the pleas because they bother him enough. And I get it, people. You're bothering me enough. I get it. And I will bring justice for the sake of the elect. But... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Mm. And I think that's the fundamental question. Here is the perseverance of the saints, the ones who have faith. Mm-hmm. Will we remain faithful during this time? It goes back to what we said at the beginning, and that is, this is an exhortation to the church, to the people of God, to not give in to Babylon's ways, to not give in to the harlot's ways, to not give in to the beast's ways, because it just brings injustice. It brings war and violence and bloodshed. Now, a few people benefit from that. And it's interesting that we are the ones benefiting from that Yep, because we're not crying out how long yet the mass of people, the ones who are suffering, 
The way of Jesus is the way of peace, the way of justice for the sake of the marginalized and the oppressed. It's goodness to the poor. And whose side are we on? To whom do we give allegiance? I think that's something I'm grappling with. I don't understand. I don't know what to do here living in the West and, and benefiting from it as well. But these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. I'm curious, you brought up the idea of faith as you're reading the Luke passage. There's a a number of scholarly controversies in terms of how Paul uses the word like faithfulness Mm -hmm. of Christ and that sort of thing, which we don't have to get into now. But even if we've, how do we say this? Do you think we've limited the idea of of faith to merely meaning belief? And it does in Greek, faith, belief, trust, they're the same words, depending on how they're translated, a a noun or a, a verb or whatever. But the idea that faith only means belief. Right. And that's where, as you were reading that, I'm thinking faith has to also mean faithfulness as well. Exactly. And if we had time, and we did this on a podcast earlier when we did the Gospel of Luke, the next story in Luke 18 is the Pharisee and the tax collector. Mm -hmm. And the story after that is the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says he's actually the Pharisee. So the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector are then exemplified by the story of the rich young ruler and then the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector in chapter 19. Zacchaeus says, if I've wronged anybody, mm-hmm. I'll pay him back fourfold. Yep, yep. He realized his faith, in other words, brings justice. Yes, yeah. And he's like the, the tax collector who says, woe is me, I'm not worthy. And God says, that man went home justified. Why? Because he realized his sins and repented of them. The rich young ruler goes, oh, I've kept all the commandments. Jesus' answer was, okay, then go sell your possessions and give to the poor and come follow mm-hmm. me. Because you became wealthy, Jesus is saying, at the expense of the poor. You can't own much land, as Matthew says, the rich young ruler did. You can't own much land unless you took it from another Israelite and didn't give it back in the, land, in yeah. the year of Jubilee. You, yep. you, you appropriated someone else's land. And now, if you truly follow the commandments, love the Lord your God, then you'll follow me. And love your neighbor as yourself, you'll sell your possessions and give them to the poor. So yeah, faith is not this emptiness, as James says, show me your faith without works. And mm-hmm. you're, and that I don't remember exactly how to quote it, but the idea is faith without works is dead. There's, yeah. It's no such thing. I think he says, I'll so, show you my faith by my works. Yeah, Something exactly. Like that. That. Yeah, so thank you. Excellent. Cool. Awesome. Hey, we finished up. So next week, can you promise the people, give the people what they want. They want chapter 15. Can we do that? Uh, 15 as the intro to 16 and the seven um, bowls. Hey, and, whoa, uh, whoa. We won't quite get to Armageddon. In the discussion at the end of the seven bowls. And I think it'll be really critical, as we've mentioned all along, to understand the Armageddon passage and later on the Millennium passage. We've got to follow the order that John's laid out for us and notice these clues of how it's organized. That's going to be critical. So 15 actually, it seems meaningless, but it's really actually very significant. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Hope you everyone's digging it. Read ahead, chapter 15, become familiar with it, and we'll see you guys next week. No, we won't see them next week, Vinny. It's a podcast. I'm, I'm seeing them. They see we me won't, right we now. Won't, no, I'm telling you, every week we do this. I try to clarify. We will not see them. But take care, everyone. See you later. Oh, nailed it. I want to thank you for joining us on today's podcast. And we would love for you to share the work of Determined Truth with others. Please follow this podcast and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will go a long way towards helping others find this podcast. Then share it with others so that we can get the word of the gospel of the kingdom to more people.